If you have a Bible, please turn to Exodus chapter 19. As a church this year, we're exploring what it looks like to cultivate intimacy with God. That's what we said at the very beginning of the year. And as a part of that journey, exploration, we're studying Exodus in a series that we're calling Deliverance. And it's been uh, an incredible time so far in this, in this narrative, in this book. The whole point of Exodus is that we would live with God and God would live with us. But for that to happen, as Exodus begins, God has to deliver his people. He has to free his people from Egypt, from what is their enslavement. And so we are now in Exodus 19. We've journeyed through, obviously, the whole first part of Exodus through the Red Sea. Um, uh, we've been looking at uh, what it looks like and feels like to wander in the wilderness a bit. And now we come to Mount Sinai, and that's where we find ourselves this morning in Exodus chapter 19. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. One will be brought to you. You guys could read along, follow along, all of that. And um, I'll, I'm going to read just the first part of Exodus 19. And usually I read a, a large chunk of Scripture, but today just a very small chunk of Scripture. But it is Scripture, so may, we, may God give us ears to hear. So, Exodus 19 verse 1. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered into the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I ask God that you would help me today get through the things that I feel kind of stirring uh, in my spirit, but also to be faithful to the text at the same time. I know standing here every single week, there is this kind of middle place that I kind of stand, step into, and I ask that you would you would lead me, that you would give us ears collectively to hear, and that our church today, together, we'd feel pastored by you, Holy Spirit. I feel like you met us where we're at, whether it's uh, in total joy from this last week or total pain from this last week or anywhere in the middle, that you would meet us, Lord, and move us toward the ideal that you have for our community, the ideal that you have for your church, God, that we would live into being who we are to be in this world and with all the prayers that we've prayed and the prayers of the people before, uh, during first set of music, and even as we listen now, as we pray, God, and intercede for our world, may you also make us the answer to our very prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, what a week we had this last week. The same week that brought us the World Cup also brought us news of what was happening on our borders with children taking from their 
parents and fenced in by our government. In the middle of the immigration story, we had both major sides of our political spectrum, Democrats and Republicans, quoting Bible verses at each other, which I found very fascinating as a pastor. It's a pretty incredible cultural moment that we were all experiencing. What I found especially interesting is I saw and heard from people, particularly on the liberal left, not necessarily known for their profession of biblical faith, quoting Bible verses about what Jesus would do in this situation. And why were they quoting these verses? Well, I don't think all of those on the left were quoting Bible verses because they wanted to align their lives and policy to the teachings of the Bible. No, I think they were doing it because it seems that the conservative right, who, let's be honest, and say often pride themselves in having the Christian, quote, Christian vote, were trying to justify very un-Jesus-like and unbiblical behavior with the Bible. And the left were like, time out. Have you read this verse about what Jesus says? Which brings up a really great point that Ross Dothit made in his book, Bad Religion, where he says, America's problem isn't too much religion or too little of it, it's bad religion. The slow motion collapse of traditional Christianity and the rise of a variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place. And it's those pseudo-Christianities that has many of us afraid to even be called a Christian today. A couple months ago on the HBO show Silicon Valley, there was an episode where the main character, Richard, was in the middle of a large meeting and outed another character as a Christian. And the mood in the room instantly changed. Everyone's expression shifted from excitement about the idea they were all working on to shock and dread when he outed someone as a Christian. After the meeting, the character pulled Richard aside and said, I'm not openly a Christian. He said, thanks a lot, you just outed me. Which led everyone, took every character in the show pretty much confronting Richard saying, you don't out someone as a Christian in the valley. Jared, another character, pulls Richard aside and says, you can literally be anything in the valley, but the one thing you cannot be is a Christian. Now, the show is always sharp and often hilarious in its critique of the hypocrisy in Silicon Valley tech. And this episode tried to obviously highlight the hypocrisy of what Bay Area tech believes about inclusiveness. All that aside, this episode had me thinking. With Christianity being such a political trigger these days, on top of all the other ways Christianity in the very progressive land of the Bay Area is seen, how do we, as Christians, recover the intent and meaning of being a people who represent God to the world? How do we, as Christians, recover the intent and meaning of being a people who represent God to the world? I think that is the question that's before us as we live in San Francisco in our time. And I think it's the question that our text begins to answer in the story of the Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus starts, if you were with us at the beginning, the book of Exodus starts with a man who will remain nameless throughout the Exodus story. And actually, the entire Bible doesn't even name him, as if to say, may his name never be mentioned. He is just called the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh is a megalomaniac whose number one concern is national security. So when he saw that the Hebrew people, who live in Egypt, by the way, as famine refugees, 
were growing in number, his biggest concern was the security of his nation. And what happens? A ruler with a rational fear of an ethnic minority in the name of national security justifies what kind of behavior? And if you're with us, you know the answer is slavery. And not just slavery, but genocide. The Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt. But God, God heard their cries for liberation and justice and deliverance, and he acted. But God acted in his way and in his timing. And he raised up Moses to be a deliverer to Israel. And through Moses and Aaron, God with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm brought Egypt to their knees and brought Israel redemption. Now I think that part of the story all of us are familiar with. But, I, but the thing that is hard to hold in our minds and in our hearts as we make our way through life and our own quests for freedom is why did God free Israel? Why did God deliver Israel? Or maybe even broader than that, why does God free people at all? Why did God, in this particular text or this particular book, why did God deliver Israel? And some of your answers might be this, and they're easy answers. Some answers might be because they were oppressed, because they needed freedom, because God loves them. And all of those answers are completely true. And they are actually not robust enough and not buoyant enough to give Israel meaning and purpose after their deliverance. So just to say, you're free. Why did I free you? Because I love you. That's, that is so true and great. But that there isn't like, okay, buoyant enough to go, okay, then what's my meaning and my purpose? Well, if you said, well, because you were oppressed, even that still doesn't give them the, the robustness of living into who they're supposed to be. So why did God save Israel? And we're told really early on, actually in chapter four, this is what we read. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. And then in chapter 6, we read this, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. You're going to be my people, and I will be your God. So at the very beginning of the Exodus narrative, God begins to drip to Israel his plan and purpose for saving them. I'm going to save you so that you will worship me. The Hebrew word there is serve. See, God wasn't, God wasn't freeing Israel from a master to no master. He was freeing them from an oppressive master, Pharaoh, to a true master himself. So what God was doing by freeing Israel was saving them so they can live into their true intentions as his people. You are my people and I'm saving you from Pharaoh because the way he is exploiting you and turning you into slaves, that is not my intention for you. I have an intention for you. I'm your true master. I'm going to free you so that you can serve me and that you can live into your true intention. Secondly, it was so that they could be his people and be with them and be close to him. Literally, the language evolves around what God does in the Exodus to become a wedding language. God, through the prophets, they will reflect on Exodus and use the language of a wedding, a marriage, to explain what God does to Israel. That he found them and he brought him to, them to himself and, they, and he dressed them in, in a beautiful dress and he married them. And on Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with them, with the cloud above them, which is like a chutzpah in a, in a Jewish wedding. With the cloud above them, he married them. He wedded with them. He became their husband. So... And not only did he marry them, he moved in with them. That's a really important part of the, the whole thing. God wants to move in with Israel. He's like, we're going to get married and I'm moving in with you. They're like, yeah, I'm going to live right in the middle of everyone. 
Like literally the, a tabernacle. Like my, I'm going to live, the, I'm gonna li- you're going to live with me, I'm going to live with you, we're going to move into it together. Okay, are you with me still? Okay, you there. Okay. So all of that will be expounded upon and brought into clear focus as to why God has saved them and delivered them, moved into that with them in chapter 19. In chapter 19, Israel is at the base of the famous Mount Sinai, where they will soon receive 10 commandments. We'll talk about some of those in the coming weeks. Before they do, God makes known to them their identity and its meaning in the world. He says this, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, I think this right here, if you have a physical Bible, I would highlight this and put in there, if you write in your Bibles, the, one of the most crucial texts in the entire Bible. Write that in your, in your Bible if you can. I think right here, I actually have that written in my Bible. This right here is one of the most crucial texts, the most important text, most important parts of the entire Bible of understanding what the whole Old Testament is trying to do and actually what the whole Bible is trying to do. Here, God says, I saved you. I carried you on eagle's wings. Now, by the way, eagle's wings, that might sound like a very comforting statement. That's a very frightening statement. Can you imagine being on an eagle's wing? The thing is flapping up and down. It's this violent, crazy, powerful creature. What God's saying is, I, I like with my power and you barely made, you like hung on to my wing. It's powerful. It's dangerous. I brought you out and I brought you to myself. That's the key. I saved you that you can be with me. But I didn't just save you that you could be with me. I saved you that you could be with me and that you could be for me a certain kind of person. Did you see that? You see that turn of phrase? Although I I saved you out of all the nations so, so you would be my people. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me. You will be with me as my people, but you will also be for me. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and you will be for me a holy nation. This here is the language of orientation. This is how Israel is to orient their entire life and being. Their, all of their identity, all of their meaning, all of their purpose needs to be oriented around the reality that they are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom means they were to be organized politically as priests. The way they organized themselves as a nation had to be priestly. But a holy nation is that they were to be set apart for a specific reason. Everything flows from that. Now, I, I want to talk about what this all means and what this all means for us here today in San Francisco in our moment in history. Before I do, I need to show you that this vision is carried on in the exact same language to the followers of Christ. Because I would hate for you to think, well, that was like the Old Testament and it's set in all kinds of crazy stuff I don't understand with all kinds of blood sacrifices and all this stuff I don't get. I don't know how to apply this text to me. Okay, how about this? Let's just do a clean shot to the New Testament so you're, you're going you're gonna to be able to move on, right? <laughs> so let's do this direct line, main line to the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is what it says. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You're like, wait, that, isn't this plagiarism? Isn't he literally stealing something from the Old Testament? He is, exactly. That same exact language. 
that was used for Israel as God's special people are now all of the people of God who trust in Christ. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, doesn't matter if you're male, female, every single person that trusts in Christ. Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, by the way, this is all the same language. You get the language of deliverance here, right? God saved Israel from Egypt into the, the promised land. God saved us from darkness into light, right? It's the same, like the language of deliverance is in there. You get the language of a priestly kingdom. You have the language of a holy nation. You have a language of being God's treasured possession. So what I'm about to say bears true for us today as followers of Jesus who represent God and what God is like in the world. So everything I'm about to say from Exodus is true about us. Are you okay with that? Okay, let's move on. First thing, first thing God says about his people who he saved. God delivers and makes his people priests. The first thing he says is that you and I, once we're saved or delivered, we are priests. When God says in Exodus that the whole earth is mine, but then in the same breath he says, Israel is my special possession as a priestly kingdom. What he means is this. He's, God's like, the whole earth is mine and you're my special people. What he's saying is this. Israel is going to live on a very open stage. The way the world sees Israel will be, God's like, I'm going to expose you. I'm going to expose all of your stuff. I mean, we have Israel's failures recorded to us for thousands of years written in this book. Right? I mean, if you read the, 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 the Old Testament, it's not like Israel's like the hero of the Old Testament. They keep blowing it big time. But God is saying, I'm putting you on a very open stage. Everyone's going to know what you're doing. And this is why, because you represent me to the world. Israel's going to live on an open stage. In the same way, I believe the church lives on an open stage. People will know what God is like through the way Israel or the way that we are organized and the way Israel treats each other and the way it treats the world. The way that Israel is organized and treats each other and treats the world represents who God is. This is why God calls them priests. Now, what are priests? Quite simply, the responsibility of priests are twofold. The responsibility of priests are to bring the knowledge of God to the people and to bring the prayers and sacrifices of people to God. Okay, there's a dual role for priests. So what priests did in Israel, priests would, would bring the knowledge of God to people. They would remind the people of God's word. They would remind people of the Torah law. They would remind people of God's ways. They would stand before people and represent God. This is what God says. But they would also stand before God and represent people. This is what the people say. This is what they need. Here's their prayers. Here's their sacrifices. Here's their longings. God, hear their prayers. There's a dual movement in the priesthood, from God to people and from people to God. From God to people, it's to make God known. But it's from people to God, it's intercession. It's to stand before God and go, I want to bring, I want to bring the people's prayers to you. I want to bring their sacrifices to you. Therefore, God is saying that Israel as a whole people are to the world what their priest inside Israel were to them. Does that make sense? What priests in Israel... Like they, they had this dual role, but God is saying, okay, now Israel, you are to be that for the entire world. Your whole people group is to be, to be this to the whole world. So Israel is a mediator. She must bring humanity closer to God. To pray to God for humanity. To intercede for them. 
Her service to God is in the name of others. We just opened our worship, our, our gathering in uh, what we, we call the liturgy of the prayers of the people, what, what it's called, not what we call, what it is called. Prayers of the people is this intercession that we do as a church on behalf of our city and on behalf of the world. It means something to us. When Tyler leads this time, it means something deeply to us. It is our church bringing before God the prayers of the world. This is our role as priests. Every single one of us, us as a church, you and I, are to bring the prayers, the longings, the heartbreak of the world before God in prayer. That is, that's what, we are, that's what we're supposed to do. So we're supposed to, especially when we gather in church. I think there's something potent that happens when we gather a church this large in the middle of San Francisco and we intercede on behalf of the city and we pray for the city and we exalt Christ in the middle of the city. Something potent happens. God, we are as priests ministering to God and saying, God, we want to bring before you San Francisco. And here's the stuff. Here's what's going on. Here's their longings. Here's their burden. Here's the oppression. And we want to bring our nation before you because here's their collective longing. And here's their collective burden. And here's where people don't agree. And here's where people are literally killing each other. We want to bring that before you, God. And God, we want to bring the, the prayers of the world before you. And you might think that's so big. That's our mandate. That's what we're here for. But Israel has also to bring God closer to humanity by bringing them God's revelation, his light, and the good news of salvation. Which is why it's to the shame of people who profess to follow Jesus to be schooled by people who don't profess to follow him on what he says about treating people who are vulnerable, especially children. Now, that might be super anecdotal because I don't, I don't know, nor do I want to get into who's professing Christian or not. My, my point is this, the, the church, or I'll get more, maybe more specific, this church reality. As a part of Jesus' church, we are priests in this city. Amen. Everywhere you go and everywhere you work and play and rest and learn and live, you and I are to be priests. The dual role of priests are we are to bring the light of the gospel to the city. We are to carry that in the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we speak, the way that we relate, the way that we buy and sell, the way that we treat our bodies, the way we treat other people's bodies, the way we treat all of the really systemic issues in our city. We're to, we're to bring the light of the gospel to that. We're also to bring the city to God in intercession. We're to pray for the city. I hope that you somehow uh, are, stay attuned to local news. I know that national news is crazy, and I know that I know that global news is crazy. But keep your pulse on 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 local news, so that you know how to pray for our city, how to minister to our city, and what are the problems of our city. Now, it's it's not our job. I want to make this clear. It is not our job to change the world. It is not our job to save the world. That is God's job. However. We, what, the way that God has decided to change the world and bring his shalom to it is through his people who take up their identity as priests in the world and live into it in such a way that makes God known and sees their life and ministry to the world. Do you see? It's God's job. God's like, I'm going to fix the world. I'm, the kingdom of heaven is going to come down on earth. I'm going to do it. You're not going to bring it up. Okay. I'm going to bring it down. 
I'll do that. Revelation, right? It says that. But here's how you're to participate. I want you to be, I want you to represent who I am in the world by being priests in the world. I want you to work towards this. This is how I'm about saving the world or changing the world. I'm using the church now. I'm using the church to be a holy people in this world, to be set apart, to bring about this sort of change in the world. Now, that part might sound great and not many people would disagree, but the, maybe you do, but not many. The question is how do we do that? How do we, become, how do we be priests in the world? And the answer to the second part of what God says here in Exodus 19 is the answer to that. And the answer is you and I have to be holy. Okay, God delivers and requires holiness. Now, holiness is intrinsic to priesthood. You cannot be a priest and not be holy. You cannot be a priest and not be holy. Actually, the whole of the language in Exodus is conditional language. He says, now, if, verse 5, if you obey me and fully keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. The condition of, God's being, uh, of being God's special people in the world to show what he's like is conditional upon them being holy. If you are holy, then you're going to represent me in the world. Now, what, is it, what, is, what, is, what does the word mean that, that might have, um, what does this word mean? Because I know holy. I just, when I say the word holy, I lose like most than half, more than half the room. You're like, oh my gosh, here he goes. He's supposed to say that. He's the pastor. He's going to make us all holy. Yeah, I get it. What does it mean to be holy? Okay, I, I want to I bring this, this word down a bit because I know it like lives in like real, real high lofty religion. Let me just bring it down. What does it mean to be holy? Holiness is something or someone set apart for a distinct purpose and kept separate for that purpose. Okay, so let me explain this to you. When you think of holy, I want you to think of your toothbrush. That's probably the most holy thing you own. Your toothbrush is holy. It is set apart for a very specific purpose. You do one thing with your toothbrush. You brush your teeth with it. It is set apart for the one thing. You, you don't use your toothbrush to brush your teeth and clean your white sneakers. It's a no-no. You don't use your toothbrush to brush your teeth and clean the grout on your shower. You don't use your toothbrush to brush your teeth and clean your toilet. Okay, if you did any of those things, it would cease to be used for your teeth. Right? And not, okay, stop. Because it gets better. And not just for teeth, but for your teeth. If my wife uses my toothbrush by accident, I get a new one. I don't have time. If you share a toothbrush with your spouse, I don't have time to talk about the, how you're breaking most of the commands of the Bible. I don't have time. If those things happen to your toothbrush, it would no longer be holy. It would no longer be set apart for brushing your teeth. Okay. Now, you are holy. You are set apart for a very specific purpose. You have meaning. You were delivered to live into that meaning. 
you live in, to live into that purpose. If then you live outside of that purpose, you will cease to be used as holy. Does that mean you are no longer saved? No, it doesn't mean that. Israel was delivered, saved, not by their own doing, but by God's mighty hand. They were already saved from Egypt. However, their holiness was a condition of their priesthood, and priesthood was a dimension of their mission, what they were saved for. So you can say that their holiness had an indicative and an imperative side to it. An indicative, on one hand, holiness was given. It was a fact of their existence. They were set apart because they were God's people. God saved them from Egypt and delivered them. And it was by his initiative and by his choice. And they almost did nothing. They were passive in the entire thing. God saved them. Just by the fact that God rescued them, delivered them, saved them, they were holy. They were set apart. That's a fact. That's true about them. But there's also an imperative side. On the other hand, holiness was a task. That is, Israel was to live out in daily life the practical implications of their status as God's holy people. That is, this is like a be what you are type of message. They were set apart and they were to live into this. Now, at the beginning, I said that God wanted to live with Israel. Remember that? I try to play that up a bit, right? God wanted to live with them. He wanted to live among them. He wanted to move in with them. Why did God want to be so close to Israel? On Christmas last year, Ash, Ashley, my wife, Ash won a, a Peloton bike. And a Peloton bike is a, basically a super sexy stationary bike um, with all these live streamed classes, which is basically like SoulCycle, only that you get to stay home and not have to smell other people that you work out with. Anyway, Ash won one of these bikes. And of course, I started using it. I know it doesn't look like I use it, but I use it. And I've thought a lot in using this bike, I've thought a lot about what makes this technology so powerful. I mean, this is a, a pretty addicting machine. Now on the bike, there's this beautiful 22 inch touchscreen on the bike. Now the screens on your phones and on your tablets are designed in such a way that you don't see your reflection when the screen is on, which is another sermon entirely, and I promise it's coming. But this Peloton screen is designed so that you barely see your reflection in it. And so when you're riding, when you're taking these classes from professional instructors that are, these people are like part motivational speakers, part DJs, part fitness demigods, part dancers, and like part time models. Like you see them, you see them on your screen, but as you look, you faintly see your own reflection laid over their image and you become them. It is so powerful, I'm getting chills. It is so powerful. And they're not like as out of breath as you. And they look like they're still having fun. And they're saying all the right things and it completely empowers you to keep going. So why did God want to live with his people and be in the midst of them? God wanted to be so close to them so that when they, when they lived with him, they would see his image. And they would match up what they're like to what he's like. I want to be so close to you that you see what I'm like so that you can mirror me. So that you can, the image that I made you in, that you can start living into this image. This is why Jesus came so close, by the way. This is why the Holy Spirit lives in us, by the way. So in the, in the next book, the book of Leviticus, God says in chapter 19, he says, Be holy 
because I, the Lord your God, am holy. What is God saying? Be like me. He wanted to live so close to them. He's like, I want you to become like me. I want you to reflect what I'm like in the world. So what is holiness in a way that would reflect the holiness of Yahweh? Leviticus gets a bad rap. It's such a great and incredible book. What content might be, what might, might we expect to be suspended under the headline of Leviticus 19:2? be holy? How are we to be holy like God's holy? If you read Leviticus 19, which is what Israel is supposed to be like in the world, the bulk of Leviticus 19 shows us that the kind of holiness that God reflects, that reflects God's own holiness, is completely practical, social, and very down to earth. Simply using, use, listing its contents highlights, highlights what's going on. This is holiness that Israel is supposed to live like, to become like God, in the very next book of Leviticus. And here's just a list. And you can, we, we might be able to post this list. You can match it up to what Leviticus 19 says. But it's all there, I promise. Respect within the family and community. That's how you're to be holy. Exclusive loyalty to Yahweh as God. Economic generosity in agriculture. Observing the commandments regarding social relationships. Economic justice and employment rights. Social compassion to the disabled. Judicial integrity and the legal system. Neighborly attitudes and behavior, loving one's neighbor as oneself. Preserving the symbolic token, tokens of religious distinctiveness. Sexual integrity. Rejection of practices connected with idolatrous or occult religion. No ill treatment of ethnic minorities, but rather racial equality before the law and practical love for the alien as for yourself, because God said, remember, you too were an alien once and I saved you. This is the way that Israel was supposed to be holy. This is radically practical and radically, I mean, progressive in their time. They were to be completely different. And through the chapter, the refrain keeps coming up over and over again, I am the Lord, as if to say, your quality of life must reflect my character. That is what I require. You must reflect me. You must image me. In all these ways then, these are the down-to-earth practical ways of the social ethics of Israel to respond to their Redeemer. And so God said, this is what you are to be to me in the world. You are to be holy. You are to be set apart. You are to be like me. You are to image me. And so the church, us, we are to image Jesus. We are to become like Jesus and show what Jesus is like in the world. Jesus. And if the Bible, okay, I'll just say that if you're new to the Bible and the whole thing trips you out, I get it. Start with Jesus. Because I don't think you get to the rest of the Bible but through Jesus. Start with Jesus. Start with his teachings. Because I think one day we'll all stand before God and he will say to us, you had one job. You had one job to reflect to the world what I am like. That was what I left you to do. And I wanted you to start real small by loving your neighbor, loving each other in the community, and then I wanted to expand out from there. And so if there's ways that we are not lined up with this, I know when you hear something like this, you can't, it's hard to get a hold of it. 
Maybe start here. Let's pray. Lord, I want to just pray this because I just don't want to say this. I want to pray this. Lord, search me and know me. Search us and know us. Show us ways in which we are not aligned. Would you confront any demonic, evil, political spirit that takes over and tries to align ourselves to some political thing in America, some party in America? I don't care where it is, Lord. I pray that we would align with you and your teachings, Jesus, that we would be a royal priesthood in San Francisco, a holy people in San Francisco. And when I say holy, Lord, I know, I know that we're not doing it. I know it. I know that a lot, most of us are not. We just are not set apart like that. We're, we, we just feel like we're common. We're just like everyone else. We do everything everyone else does and we don't think about it. But I pray for the loving conviction of the Spirit to begin somewhere today to convict us, to say, you're, you're, you're holy. You're set apart for a specific reason. That is why I saved you. And we would align ourselves with that, God. We would align ourselves with that. Make us a holy people. Purify us, Lord. And we repent for the ways that we have not acted holy or been holy. For ways that we've sinned against you and grieved the spirit of the living God. Forgive us of our sin, God. Forgive us of our sin, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.